So what is the greatest story that you have ever been told? The best, the, the highest. Is it a space epic like Star Wars? Is it fantasy like Lord of the Rings? Is it a love story like The Princess Bride? Is it drama like Gone with the Wind or Forrest Gump, Braveheart, The Godfather? What is the greatest story that you have ever been told? Now, what if I told you you are part of a story that is being told right now? What if I told you you have a part to play in that story, but sorry, you're not the star. You're just an extra. But you're an extra in a story that's being told with every passing day. And the star of the story is who we met just now in John 1. The star of the story that you are in, that I am in, is the word. The reason John introduces the word right at the beginning is to make sure that, he, that we are all clear on exactly who this word is before we continue in the rest of the book. And everything we've seen up to this moment points to one and only one conclusion. The word, Jesus, is God. Jesus is God. He's not just a man who merely did the will of God, but is not actually God. He's not partially God, a kind of demi-God. He's not a rival to the one true God. He's not a separate God, like a second God. God is God. In chapter 1, verse 1, the word was God. As John said in John 1, 1, the, the word is eternal. And for eternity, he has been with God, equal in relationship with God, and equal to God as a person. Yet, there is one God. And if this is not true, if Jesus is not God, there is no salvation. We are lost, every single one of us, if Jesus is not God. His death does not help us at all if he's a half God, if he's an angel, or just a man. A Jesus who is not God makes his life, his death, his resurrection absolutely useless to every single one of us. Why? Because he could not have overcome sin, death, and Satan, all the powers of hell, unless he is God. Only God is strong enough to defeat all three, to be Lord over sin, over death, over the darkness, over Satan. Only God can have the amount of righteousness that we need, which by the way is perfect righteousness, not a, not, not a fraction of an ounce of sin. And only God can pay the vast penalty that we deserve for our sins. No angel could do that. No man could do that either. At best, a man could maybe pay for his own sins, but he would have to be perfect. He wouldn't be able to pay for anybody else's. Jesus must be more than a man to pay for the trillions of sins of all who would ever trust in him. No angel could do that. Only God can do that. So there is no salvation unless Jesus is God. And that is why this truth that we've been looking at week after week now, is why this truth has been so attacked for the past 2,000 years. Despite numerous Old Testament and New Testament texts that proclaim this truth that Jesus is God, the assaults against this truth have never stopped. So I've been going slow through this section. I've been risking boring you by saying some of the same things over and over again, trying to make sense of some pretty heady things, which is going to be true today as well. I've been doing all of that so you would be ready for the attacks. There was a man early in my life as a Christian who I call him my Paul. He's the man that had the most impact on me in my early days as a Christian. And, and as he was a teacher and he would, he would teach us. And when he was talking about Christ, he, he would pause and a, and a hymn would come to his mind. And then he would say it to us. And the hymn he would typically say goes like this. What think ye of Christ? 
is the test to try both your state and your scheme. Scheme is an old word for your plans, your life. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. And then the second line says, some take Jesus a creature to be a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I am sure he is God. So are you sure that he is God? Are you sure that he is God? This is what John wants you to think about Jesus. That, John, that, 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 that Jesus is none other than God. And that theme does not stop when we get to verse 2. Take a look at it. He was in the beginning with God. Now that sounds a lot like the first two phrases in verse 1, right? Where it says, in the beginning was God and the word was with God. Sounds almost identical. So why does John say this again? He already made this point. Well, he makes this point again because the three main truths in verse 2 cannot be missed cannot be misunderstood if we're going to understand verse 3. So notice first, the word is a person. The word is a person. How do I know that? Because the first word of verse 2 is what? He. It's not a metaphor. It's not a personification. It's an identification that the word is a person. We're going to see that in verse 14. Metaphors don't become reality. Personifications don't become reality. The word is a person. He's personal, which means that he's not a force. He's not like gravity He's not like electricity. He's not like the, 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 the tides and, and the waves. He, he's, he's none of those things. He is a he, not an it. He is a person. Second notice, verse 2, he was in the beginning. Which again, like verse 1, means he already existed when the beginning began. When the story of reality began, he was already there. He didn't come into being. So the verbs used for creation, like made in verse 3. Verbs like that are never used of the word because he wasn't made. He wasn't created. He is eternal. And then third, he was in the beginning with God. He's a person and yet he is a separate person from God while at the same time being equal with God. He is with God, in relationship with God, face to face. So verse two, the word is personal, eternal, and equal with God. And if we try to wrap our minds around that idea, around, around those facts about Jesus, let's put it this way, point number one, Jesus is what God is. Jesus is what God is. God is personal and eternal. And the word Jesus is God, verse one, so he too is personal and eternal, making him equal with God. In other words, Jesus is what God is. The New Testament uses two illustrations to teach this idea to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians, or Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is called, quote, the image of God. The idea being just like the image you see in the mirror is exactly what you are. So Jesus, the word, is exactly what God is. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is, quote, the exact imprint of God's nature. So as the image in the Play-Doh that your kids smushed down, or your grandkids smushed down, just as that image perfectly is reproduced in the mold, so Jesus is the exact imprint of God, perfectly reproducing God's nature. Neither image nor imprint, neither of those ideas convey uh, the sense of priority or superiority. 
You know, whether, whether superior in time or superior in being, just like the image in your mirror is less than the actual you, right? It, these, these images do not convey those ideas. Both image and imprint convey the idea of being an exact copy, a perfect representation. In other words, they convey the idea that Jesus is what God is. So last week I gave you 10, I think 10 of the clearest verses in the New Testament on Jesus being God. And what I did on your notes today is I, I put them in the upper left corner of the box that I, that I put on your notes. You can cut those notes out, paste them in your Bible. But in addition to those clear statements, the fact that Jesus is what God is, is seen throughout the New Testament. And the first way we're going to see that it's, it's shown throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is described with characteristics that can only describe God. So Matthew 28, 20, Jesus is described as omnipresent, something only God is. He is present everywhere. He is with his people always to the end of the age, no matter what nations they end up going to and making disciples in, he is there. Philippians 3.21, Jesus is omnipotent. He's all powerful. It says there that by his power, he can subdue all things, which means there's nothing that he cannot subdue. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing that has more strength than he does. Nothing and no one is more powerful so as to subdue him. That's why 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that Jesus is the power of God. He is the power of God. Colossians 2.3, Jesus is omniscient. He, he knows all things. It says there that all wisdom and knowledge belong to him. So think about that. There is not a single piece of knowledge. There's not a, a single outworking of that knowledge and wisdom. There's not a single thing that Jesus does not know. And if there's not a single thing that you don't know, you are all-knowing. You are God. Hebrews 13, 8 says that like God, Jesus is unchanging. He's not one way one day and a different, a different the next day or different that same day. He doesn't suffer from mood swings. He doesn't change. That verse says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then we saw John 1, 1, John 1, 2. Jesus is eternal. He's uncreated. So like God, he has always been, and that's because Jesus is what God is. Second, when it comes to his character, when it comes to morality, Jesus is what God is. So like God, Jesus is called holy and righteous. Like God, he is called faithful and true. Like God, he is called merciful and compassionate. Now taken by themselves, those attributes can be said about any one of us. But when you take those attributes and combine them with the clear statements about Jesus, these clear attributes that only God has, you put all of that together, you see that in his character, he is what God is. And then finally, Jesus also does what God does. So he does things that only God can do. We'll see that in relationship to creation in verse 3. But like God, Jesus sustains life. Like God, he forgives sins. Like God, he gives eternal life. John 10, 28. Like God, Jesus receives worship. What we were just doing, Jesus only, Jesus, that is only right if Jesus is God. If he's not God, that was blasphemous, what we just did. And, and, and Sean just now praying to Jesus. That is blasphemous as well. Unless Jesus is God, and we see in the New Testament, he receives prayer, John 14, 14. Jesus raises the dead, and like God, Jesus is the final judge of all the earth. So when you put it all together, Jesus is what God is. 
He's equal with God. He and the Father are one. And this is why a person's attitude towards Jesus is automatically their attitude towards God. You can't be like, oh, I really like God, but that Jesus guy, get him out of here. You know, I don't really like him, you know, but God, he's great. No, because to honor Jesus is to honor God. To know Jesus is to know God, the New Testament says. To see him is to see God. To hate him is to hate God. To deny Christ is to deny God automatically. And yet to receive Jesus is also to receive God. To confess him, to give him your allegiance. You're also giving your allegiance to God. And to believe in Christ is to believe in God. I give you all the verses there in that little box. You can check me out. So these ideas like image in a mirror or imprint of a mold are helpful illustrations for Jesus in relation to God. And the reason they are helpful is because Jesus is who God is. So when you think about Jesus, he's not a junior partner. He's not God's lackey, God's little errand boy. Not at all. He is what God is. He is God. And a Jesus who isn't everything God is, is not a Jesus to trust in. It's not a Jesus to live for. Not a Jesus to sing to or to love or to follow. And definitely not a Jesus to die committed to. No, he is what God is. And this is critical for us to understand as we move into verse 3. Where it says, all things were created through him. It's not a coincidence that John started with the word being eternal in verse 2 and then moves immediately to creation in verse 3, which says the word created everything. So hard question, look at the text. How many things did he create? Your Bible doesn't say all other things? You don't see it in there, the word other? Does it say he was made and then he made all other things? No, God did not create the word. Every last thing in the category here of created, the text says the word created. And in the category of uncreated is God and the word. If John wanted to say the word was a created being, he would have said, verse 2, he was from the beginning. Meaning he had his, his, he entered the story, he was created at the beginning of creation. Or it would say that God was, or that, that the word was made in the beginning. The text doesn't say that. The text says the word was before everything. In verse 3, he created every single thing, visible and invisible. The text does not allow for any exceptions. And just in case we missed it, like, what do you really mean by that? Well, what about this? What about that? I mean, was he created? Just in case we missed what he's saying at the beginning of the verse, he repeats himself in the negative at the end of the verse. All things were made through him, through the word, And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, there is no way any created thing was created apart from Jesus. Not a single thing that exists, exists apart from him creating it. If it needed to be created, the word created it. All of it came into being out of nothing. And that is because, verse 3, without him, apart from him, was not any, notice your ESV, anything, any little thing. Without him was not anything made that was made. So to show us once again that Jesus is God, John wants us to know, point number two, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. Notice, all things were made through him. Creation is ascribed to Jesus, the word. And no one but God can create. So if Jesus 
is the creator, then Jesus is God. We take created things and we make them, we fashion them into something else. God alone creates. God turns nothing into everything we've ever seen. And if Jesus created all created things, if there's not one created thing that he didn't create, that means Jesus is uncreated. Just like you can't exist before you exist. You can't create yourself. So if he is uncreated, that means that he is what? Say with me. He is God. Okay. The sentence is clear. It is utterly impossible for him to be created. And if he is uncreated, he is God. Now look closer at verse 3. The word is seen here as the agent of creation. Notice all things were created through him. In other words, he is how God created all things. God didn't create by himself, in other words. He created all things through the word. This sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And so from him, the Father is the source of creation. And the verse continues, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. So the Father is the source, but he creates everything through the work of Jesus. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In case you were like, okay, well, like, he was created in the invisible realm, but, and then he created all the physical things. No, he creates all of it, visible and invisible. All things were created through him, through Christ, and, Paul adds, for him. Meaning, meaning we, we were created for him. That, that our purpose in life, the reason we're breathing, is Jesus. And then listen to Hebrews 1-2. God, quote, has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he also created the world. Now, as I say that, people would think, you, you might think, maybe you, that being God's agent, being how God created all things, would then make the word a lesser being than God. Kind of like his lackey, his errand boy. But let me ask you, when, when an owner of, uses a contractor to build a house, that doesn't make the contractor less human than the owner, right? They're still equally human, the owner and the contractor. The difference is, is function. So Jesus is what God is. He's the word. He is what God is. And he is the agent through whom God created all things. He is equal with God and yet distinct from God, equal in person, equal in attributes, and yet different in function, which again brings us to the Trinity. See, Jesus being God's agent of creation should just merely inform us that the Trinity doesn't do anything alone. Each member of the Trinity has his own job, his own function, and the various things that God accomplishes. For instance, think about salvation for a minute. The Father plans salvation. He sends his Son, the Word, Jesus, who died and rose again for sinners. And then the work that Jesus accomplishes on the cross and, and, and raising from the dead, that work, the Spirit then applies to individuals. The Father didn't come here and die on the cross, right? No, he had his own work. He plans it and he sends the son who he, he executes the father's plan. And then the execution of that plan, salvation for those who believe, the spirit then takes to individual people. Each person in the Trinity has his own function in salvation and each has his own function in creation. The father creates, he's the source. He does that through the word 
While the spirit, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, the spirit is there, the breath of God is there, giving life to living creatures, to all the living creatures. So don't think of Jesus like a tool, like a lesser instrument, like an axe compared to an axeman, or or a pen compared to an author. No, John has already been clear. The word is God's, not inferior, but equal co-worker in creation. And again, not one thing exists in all of creation, visible and visible, that Jesus did not create. He is the creator. I come back to these ideas over and over again, trying to say them in different ways on purpose, because I really want you to get it. Why? Because a couple weeks ago, I told you, based on a survey, stateoftheology.com, that 66% of people in churches like ours believe that Jesus is the highest created being and not God. Two out of every three. Hopefully not here. And I keep saying these things over and over again because John keeps saying them over and over again. And it's my job to simply re-say what John has already said. And I come back to it again and again and again because this is where you will be challenged. So verse three, Jesus' work proves that he is God. He does what only God can do. God, only God can create. Jesus creates. Therefore, say it with me, Jesus is God. And if he created everything in the category of created, then he is not in that category. He is in the category of uncreated with God, who is also uncreated. Why? Because he is God. So as we go through John together, as Kyle said, over the next 75 years, I think he said 175 years, actually. Remember that Jesus didn't come into the world. He came into what? He came into his world. This world belongs to him. Everything in it belongs to him. Because this is the world he created. Now, not only is Jesus the agent of creation, but he is also the agent of the new creation, which is where John goes next in verse 4. It says, in him, in the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. Make sense? And it was life, and the life was the light of men. That's easy, right? Everybody, everybody got that? I can just move on to verse 5. Verse 4 is admittedly a hard verse to understand. And let me make it harder if, you're, if, you're, if you haven't thought yet. Why is this hard? Well, is the life here physical life? Is the light here physical life? I mean, we're just talking about creation. So if it's physical life, verse 4, how is physical life, quote, the light of men? How's that even possible? What does that even mean? You see now how, like, wait a minute, what does this, what is this verse actually saying? Well, to understand that, what you have to do is you have to go throughout the book of John and you've got to look at every place where the word life is used and the word light is used to kind of get an idea of how does John use these terms and the way that he uses these terms in other contexts help us understand this context. And when we do that, when I did that this week, You find that life and light refer primarily to salvation. So life and light are spiritual realities. So listen to John 3.36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It's not physical life, that's eternal life. Eternal life and life used as synonyms. And the opposite of that, but the wrath of God remains on him. So life, eternal life, and God's wrath are all spiritual realities, not physical. 
Now listen for the word light in John 3, 18 to 20. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's not physical, that is, that's spiritual. And why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment, that's spiritual again. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So the reason people refuse to believe, they refuse to love the light, is because they love the darkness, they love their sin. Instead, because they love their sin, they, they hate the light, they reject the light. And as a result, what do we read? Condemnation and judgment for rejecting the light. None of those refer to physical light and physical darkness. Like, I just don't like light. I'm going to sit in my, my, my dark house all day. Well, you're not saved. Well, no. It has nothing to do with physical or physical light at all. This is spiritual. Each one of those realities, light, darkness, condemnation, and judgment, those are all spiritual realities. So, verse 4, light and life have to do with salvation. So what John does is he moves from verse 3. This is brilliant. Moves from verse 3, creation, the, the beginning of physical life and physical light. And he, he uses those concepts from creation to bridge the gap between creation and the new creation. New creation being salvation that, that every human being can enjoy. A salvation, verse 4, that can only be found in him, in the word. If you're thinking, okay, like creation, new creation, bridging that gap. Okay, that's a bit of a stretch, buddy. Um, can you, is there any other place in the Bible where, where that connection is made? There is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, quote, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Genesis 1, right? Let there be light. Okay, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. That's not physical. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's going to give us a clue as to what the light is in John 1.4. So look at the verse again. The spiritual life being in the word means that he is the source of spiritual life. Notice it doesn't say that he was given this life, that somebody like gifted it to him. He didn't have it at one point, but then he got it from somebody. Notice that word was there speaks again to eternity. This spiritual life existed in him for all of eternity again, because he is God. And verse four, this life was the light of men. Make sense now? How is this life the light of men or the light for men? This is why I think this is spiritual life, not physical life. Eternal life is light for men because with eternal life comes light, comes truth about God. With eternal life comes what, we, what, what I just read in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what the light is. When the light shines in a person's soul, when they embrace the truth, that person is given new life. In other words, they're saved. Life is what is received when the light, when the, when the truth is embraced. So life in verse 4 is eternal life and light is the gospel. It's truth that saves. Putting it all together, point number 3. John wants you to know that Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. In him, him alone was life. 
And the life, this, this, this spiritual life was the light of men. In other words, there is no salvation, there is no life, there's no truth that saves apart from Jesus. By Savior, I mean verse 4, Jesus is the only giver of eternal life. And Jesus is the only revealer of truth about God that brings the light of the knowledge of glory of God. Is the only revealer of truth about God that brings personal salvation. Apart from Jesus, all people are, verse 5, in the darkness. Lost, without hope, without God in the world. Why? Because they don't have Jesus who gives them light and rescues them. Now, when you follow this idea of Savior into the Old Testament, there are two verses that say that God is the only Savior. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And besides me, there is no Savior. Beside me, in my presence, other than me, around me, there is no Savior. Hosea 13, 4 says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. So again, next to me, other than me, around me, in my presence, apart from me, God says there is no Savior at all. I'm the only one. And yet, 13 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Savior. Acts 4.12 sounds a lot like these texts in the Old Testament where it says, quote, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men. <laughs> no other name under heaven, like everything is under heaven, given among men, like every human being, by which we must be saved. There's, there's no other way. And that name is the name of Jesus. And last week we looked at two texts, one in Titus, one in Second Peter, that take the ideas of God and Savior and put them together to talk about Jesus, where both texts say that Jesus is our God and Savior. So by calling Jesus the only Savior in point number three, we're just saying what John has been saying this whole entire time. Jesus is God. He is the thing before all created all other things because he created all things. He is the creator. He is distinct from and exalted above his creation. Verse 4, he is life. He is eternal life. He is the light. He is the truth. He is the, he is the, he is the gift of the gospel, the good news. And verse 5, because he is the light, justice is coming. The wrong will give way one day to what is right. And how do I know that? Verse 5, this truth, this life, this light is shining where? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. What is the darkness? The darkness is everything in opposition to God. The darkness can be summarized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world would be corporate rebellion. It's, it's the culture's collective expression of rebellion against God. It's disobedience on a society-wide level. Have you seen any of that recently? The flesh goes from corporate rebellion now, now down to personal rebellion. And then the devil would be spiritual rebellion, invisible rebellion in the spiritual realm. So the truth is shining into all of that. This unbelieving, estranged, defiant world that is alienated from God and really wants nothing to do with him at all. This world does not acknowledge him, honor him, or love him. The darkness knows next to nothing about God. And what it does know about him, it hates with all of its might. It believes evil is good for them and what is good is evil. It hurts, it harms and there's no live and let live. There's no peaceful coexistence between the light and the darkness. 
between the truth of the gospel that brings light and the, the world system that is dominated by darkness and death. There's, there is a war. Notice the end of verse 5. The darkness has not overcome it. You're trying to overcome something, there's a battle going on. There's just a constant hostile antagonism because the light, notice verse 5, never stops. It never gives up. It is always shining. Notice. Where is it shining again? In the darkness. The truth never stops confronting, never stops shining right in the face of the darkness. God uses that shining to rescue people from the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And he does that by faith in Christ. Colossians 1.13. And look, the darkness hasn't stopped. It has not overcome the light. Of course, I mean, what happens when you, when you bring light into darkness? I mean, put the weakest, smallest, most pathetic candle in the very darkest of rooms, and what happens? Darkness flees. It cannot touch the light. It cannot put it out. It cannot, verse 5, overcome it, let alone even understand the light. It's no match for the light. Darkness is powerless before the light. Try as it may, the light will always and forever be victorious over the light. But that has not stopped the darkness from trying, has it? Think about it starting with the birth of Jesus for a minute. The darkness tried to kill him at his birth. In his life, the darkness tried to tempt him right after his baptism. The darkness tried to confuse people about his, his ministry. The darkness tried to get people to reject him during his ministry. The darkness conspired against him. Got one of his disciples to betray his location so that he'd be arrested. The darkness tries him illegally. The darkness manipulates government powers to convict him. The darkness beats him, tortures him, mocks him and crucifies him. But that didn't overcome the light. Why? Oh, you do all that to me? I rise from the dead and save people who believe in me. Nice try. From there, the darkness tried to silence his followers. Book of Acts. It uses more government officials and even religious leaders to confuse, to confront, to scare and persecute. The darkness unleashes false teachers. The Jews go on the attack at the encouragement of the darkness. Centuries later, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism all do the same thing. Agents of the darkness. The darkness sows false Christians among the church. The darkness instigates government officials, kings and Caesars and governments to capture Christians, try them, torture them, throw them to lions, make them human candles, put them in concentration camps. The darkness makes false teaching sound like truth. It makes false teachers look like uh, they're better Christians than actual Christians. The darkness then consolidates its power into a false Christianity called the Roman Catholic Church and its Pope. When Rome dominated the world for about a thousand years, that didn't overcome the light, not at all. Splinter groups still stood strong in the light until the Reformation came and out of that darkness, light broke forth as the gospel was rediscovered. Since that day, cults of Christianity like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses and many others promote the darkness. Eastern thought, the New Age movement, the occult, purveyors, spreaders of the darkness. And then don't forget secularism. Atheism, ideologies like naturalism, existentialism, nihilism, socialism, right up to our very day. Critical race theory, intersectionality, abortion, racism, Pride Month. All of those things, expressions of the darkness, all of those things in opposition to the truth, and all of those things doomed to fail 
Every single one. Verse 5, the darkness has not now and it will not ever overcome the light. But one day, the, the light will overcome the darkness once and for all. On that day, all rebellion will be judged. All of it will be cast into the lake of fire. But that, my friends, is the end of the story. That's the end of the story, a story we already know the ending of and isn't quite here yet. We're still in the middle of the story. So what do we do? I mean, if the darkness cannot overcome the light, if it can never overpower, if it, if it cannot ever defeat the light, if it can never defeat the truth of God, then let's let it shine. Let's let it shine. Let's not be afraid to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Yes, the darkness seems to be getting stronger. Yes, the darkness gets to, seems to be a whole lot more intrusive. You feeling that these days? Yes, evil is suddenly good and good is now evil. Yes, that's, that's not how it used to be. But the darkness cannot and it will never win. Though the wrong seems oh so strong, and it seems pretty strong, right? How does the rest of the verse go? Christ is the ruler. He is the victor yet. Never forget that. The darkness cannot ever, ever overcome the light. But why? Why can't the darkness ever overcome the light? Answer, because Jesus is God. And nobody can overpower him. If you are on his side, let the light shine. Unleash it in your world and see what he does with you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the light. You are the truth. You are the gift of the gospel. You make the gospel good news. And so for some of the people maybe in this room or watching right now, maybe they're still in the darkness. I'm so grateful that the news about you is good. It's good because there's no possible way we could transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness. We are not strong enough. We do not have that ability. We cannot do enough good things. But you did it all. And the good news is that you will transfer us from that kingdom into yours when we trust in you. When we put aside all of our goodness, when we put aside all of our plans and we just come to you, not cleaning ourselves up, but trusting you to make us clean. Thank you for your mercy, your compassion, your grace. Thank you for being a God who is good. And for the rest of us here, I pray that you would give us the kindness and the wisdom, the boldness and the courage to shine the light of your truth by which people will be saved no matter what comes our way. May these truths Give us strength to face whatever comes in the days ahead from the darkness. 
and remind us that even the smallest candle dispels the darkest of darkness. And that, because that may be us in the coming days. Do this, please, I pray, for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen.